don't like when daylight savings times ends. Okay, that's all I was going to say. You know you don't like that? Yeah. Every November, it always gets dark. I don't even like when the sun goes down at like 7. I like when the sun goes down at like 8 o'clock in the summertime. That's my favorite. It's just because I'm a golfer, right? So I can play golf late. That's pretty much the only reason. You can play at any time. But I don't like when it gets dark early. And it's weird because at TNN, at the beginning of the school year, in the summertime, right, it's light all the time. We can stay outside. We can play. But now it's like dark from the moment you get here. It's dark. It actually gets dark something like 4.30 or something right now. It's starting to go down, which I don't like. Every day um, I'm in my office working. I, I sit there, and it gets dark so early I think I have to leave. And I look outside. I'm like, dude, it's already dark. And then I look at the, the clock, and it says it's only like 4.30 in the afternoon. It's like 5 o'clock. I don't like it when it gets dark early. But uh, we don't have much to complain about here because did you know that there's a city? city in Alaska, a city in Alaska. It's called Barrow, Alaska. It's right at the top of Alaska that the sun goes down on November 18th, normal day, November 18th. It goes down and the sun does not come back up until January 23rd. Do you know that? It's so far north that like the sun literally never comes up for like 67 days. It's nighttime. So it could be noon. It could be one o'clock in the afternoon. Guess what? It's pitch black. It looks like it looks outside right now. It's crazy, right? And that really probably makes us people appreciate when the light comes out. And I'm thinking right about now, the sun's only been down for about 12 days. They have about 50 days left till the sun comes up. That'd be crazy. I'm thinking they're looking forward to the light showing up and finally making their city, you know, a little bit brighter than pitch black at night. They're looking forward to it because they haven't seen it for a while, right? Anytime you're in darkness, you start to appreciate how amazing light is. I mean, think about it. Light helps you see things. It helps you, um, you know, with everything you do. You can't do anything without light other than think and sleep and boring things like that. But you need the light to make this world work. You need the light to live your life. And here's the thing. It's not much different spiritually. And in fact, God calls himself often light. In the Bible, he's called light. John says that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. And today we're going to look at a passage where Isaiah says that the people have been in a dark position for a long time. And we've been looking at this. Remember where we saw how the servant had to come and suffer for the sins of his people. And then last time we saw that in the book of Isaiah, God offered salvation to them. He says, take salvation, take it. It's right there. But the problem was many people did not want to turn from their sins. And that's why last week, the last time we were together in the book of Isaiah, we we're saying we need to turn from our sin because sin is like that darkness. We're standing in the darkness and we need the light. The last chapter we looked at, Isaiah 59, God says he looked around and he was looking for light. He was looking for people that were going to do the right thing. People who would live righteously for him. And guess what it says? I found nobody who would live righteously. There's no little even sparks of light. He looks at everybody and he sees there's darkness everywhere. We're all in darkness. So what God said is I had to come and do something myself. And that's what we ended with last time. But I want to pick up our Bibles and look at that real quick because God's going to say he is going to bring the light and the light is primarily found in the person of Jesus and what he's going to do for us. So let's take our Bibles and open them up to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah 59, the middle of this chapter. This is actually just a preview to what we're going to look at tonight. But I don't think we can properly appreciate the light that's going to be talked about in Isaiah 60 without seeing the darkness that takes place in Isaiah 59 that we checked out last time we were together. Isaiah 59, I said, verse 9 says, God was looking for justice. He was looking for righteousness. He says, we hope for light. This is the people talking, but behold, darkness. We look for brightness, but behold, we walk in gloom, right? It's like living in Barrow, Alaska, where the sun goes down on November 18th and doesn't come up until January 23rd. 
for 67 days, you might be looking for light, but you're not going to find any light outside. Isaiah says, that's what it's like to live as this people group. We looked, is anybody righteous? Is anybody going to do the right thing? And the answer was, they weren't. Okay. Chapter 59, look at verse 15. God says, truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. What that means is the people who want to live for God, guess what? The problem is for them, they now become the people that are taken advantage of. So in that society, these Israelites, even when they came back from exile, they were still doing what was evil. The good people, so to speak, they were the ones that were treated badly. Then it says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice, right? Justice is an idea, a word that we get, it's related to God, right? God's righteous, he's holy. And he looks in this people group and he says, none of you are acting right. He says, this whole group of people, these Israelites, there's no justice. Verse 16, he saw that there was no man, no person that was righteous. And he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then it says, God's own arm brought salvation and his righteousness have held him. So the idea is God looks, he says, is anybody righteous? And he looks, he says, nobody's righteous. Then I'm gonna have to do something myself. I'm gonna have to bring righteousness to you because you are not living in, in righteousness, in the light, so to speak. He says, they're in the darkness. Verse 17, check this out. It says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation for his head. He put on garments of vengeance for his clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. It's this picture of like God putting on clothing, really talking about Jesus here, the one who's gonna come and save us. It's like he put on a helmet. He put on a breastplate, like a big you know, piece of armor that covers your chest, right? If you're a knight in shining armor, you have a big breastplate that's made of steel or iron. It says God put on this armor. He put on a helmet. He came and he was gonna bring salvation like a warrior. He was gonna, one that's, he was gonna be the one who comes and brings righteousness for the people. So now let's look at our passage tonight. Isaiah chapter 60, verse one. God says to these people, arise, wake up. That's what happens when your alarm goes off in the morning, right? It says, arise, wake up. Hey, wake up, right? That's the idea. It says, wake up, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. It's like a, it's like a sunrise. It's like in Barrow, Alaska, where the sun is down for so long. Finally, after 67 days of darkness, what happens? Little bit of sun, little bit of light starts to peek out. And that's what he's saying. He says, although the full realization of walking in the light, it's not noon, it's just the break of dawn, but there's light now, okay? He's using this as a metaphor to talk about the problem with these people. He says, they've been walking in thick darkness in all their sin, but light is on the horizon. What he's talking about is there's hope for them to be saved in the future. Someone's gonna come from these people's perspective in the future, right? The person of Jesus, and he's gonna come and bring salvation. Look what it says. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory shall be seen upon you. And the nation shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The idea is, it's like this city set on a hill is going to have a sunrise. And when the sun rises on this city, it's going to be very clear that in Jerusalem, something's going to happen that the whole world will focus on. The whole world's going to look and say, hey, something important happened in the city of Jerusalem. I want you to think about Every church um, in this country, every church in all the countries over the world, you know what we talk about really often? You know, we talk about something happened in Jerusalem. All of our focus and attention is on something that happened in the city of Jerusalem. What happened in the city of Jerusalem? Well, Jesus came and Jesus died on a cross in the city of Jerusalem outside the gates. Now the whole world is focused, so to speak, on the light that's shining in Jerusalem. That's why when we say you can be saved from your sin, why? How can you be saved from your sin? Because something happened in this city. 
a light shined in the city. Right? That's why on these trees and on your, your house and as you drive around, you see lights everywhere at Christmas time, don't you? What do the lights represent? Right? The lights represent that Jesus came, that Jesus is like light shining in a dark place. He said it himself in John chapter 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So who's the light of the world? What is he talking about here? He's talking about Jesus. That's why it's so cool that we're studying this at Christmas time, because really this is a verse that's partially about Christmas time. It's about someone's going to come and save us. Someone's going to come and be our savior and be the light for a dark place. It's Jesus. But what do we do now? Right? Because it's so interesting. This passage, it's like the dawn breaks, right? Imagine that you're in a super dark place. It's been dark for a long time. And suddenly there's a little bit of light that you're seeing, a little bit of hope. Well, the whole place isn't lit up, right? It's not perfect yet. This city of Jerusalem for hundreds of years longer, and even frankly, from our perspective, even thousands of years, it's not perfect yet. What we're going to see described in Isaiah chapter 60 is looking all the way past what Jesus did in the past to what he's going to do in the future. It's looking to when God's going to remake a perfect world. But what about right now? This is kind of a crazy thing. These people are saying light has shined. There's no light. Times are terrible. We're getting invaded. Terrible things are happening to the city of Jerusalem. What are we supposed to do? We have a similar feeling right now when we say, hey, you can be saved in Jesus, right? Although it might not feel like it in this life, it might not feel like you have the king of the universe on your side, it might feel really dark for a while. He says, but you need to take joy because guess what? The hope is coming. Jesus is coming back. He will make everything that's wrong in this world, he'll make it right. And that's why trusting in him is of the utmost importance for all of us. So that's the big thing that we're gonna see here, that Jesus is the light that we can find hope in. So there's a couple things here in this chapter that I want you to see. But the first thing is I want you to realize, point number one, that Jesus is your only hope to really live. Jesus is your only hope to really live. And here's what I mean by that. When Isaiah says that the people are walking in darkness, how much can you do in the dark? You can't do much in the dark. Can you live your life? Can you eat? No, you can't find your food. Can you go to the grocery store? No, you can't drive. Can you, like, you can't even do your normal life stuff in the dark. And that's kind of the point. The point that he's telling these people is because you're living in your sin, everything is dark. Right? You can't see. You're blind. Things are hard to do. It's not the way it's intended to be. I was working in my office today and I was having a meeting with somebody. I was talking to Pastor Lucas in my office today. And um, we're just talking. And again, it was one of those moments where the sun went down. And I didn't think anything of it. We were just talking. We were just talking. And Pastor PJ walks by my office, right? And annoyingly, he just comes by my office, okay, opens the door, turns the light on, and just walks out without a word. We're like, oh, too much light. Like, I don't know what's going on, right? It's like, I, I was walking in dark. I didn't even see it. Nothing was, nothing was going on. And so then, boom, the lights came out, right? You can't do all the normal stuff that you normally do without the light. And it reminded me of that. And obviously, there was some light. But imagine your whole life with no light, okay? I want you to picture that. That is how God describes your life in sin. He says, it's like the lights are out. You're not doing the things that you should be doing. You can't, you can't see. If you think about what sin does, even from the very beginning, right? You had Adam and Eve who were sinless at the beginning, right? They hadn't done anything wrong, okay? What that meant was they could live in a perfect relationship with God. But the moment they choo choose to do what's wrong, they sent every person who's a human being, every person, that, the two of them, and everyone afterwards, he sent them into darkness, separation from God, right? 
That's why the first thing that happens in Genesis chapter three, after they sin, it says God was in the garden and what did they do? They went running and hiding from God because they no longer could be in the light because they had sinned. Same thing with us. When we sin and do what's wrong, what's the first thing we try to do? Cover up. Let's make sure nobody sees that. I hope nobody saw that darkness. You're trying to shove your sin in the darkness. And what God's word says is like when we sin, we're not even really living how we should supposed to be living. So what he's going to say here is that real life, the real life that you should be focusing on and the real life that you and I want to live, the New Testament calls it eternal life, is something that can only be found in Jesus. Jesus is your only hope to really live. Because you might say, well, I think that the world has a good job of living. They, um, a lot of money in the world, a lot of popularity, a lot of fame. That seems like that's the good way to live. God's word says that is just darkness. They're blind. They don't even see the real way to live. They're not even experiencing real life. What Isaiah is going to talk about is he's going to say, hey, Jesus has hope for you to actually live the way that you should live, that you can actually live in a relationship with God. There's hope, but it's only through this light that comes. Reminds us actually of what happened earlier. We read it in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 9, chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. He says to them, that there will be no more gloom one day. No more shadows for this land that was in deep darkness, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, up in the north in Israel. They are constantly being attacked by these foreign kingdoms. But God says one day there's going to be a light that comes in that very dark place. He says, in the latter times, he is made glorious or, or shining with brightness, the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. It's saying one day Jesus is going to come to that bad place where there's a bunch of sinful people that had been mistreated and terribly treated. One day, light's going to come there. Same thing with our sinful world. If you just think about the whole world, our whole world has been in the darkness of sin for a long time. And even individually, maybe you have been living in the darkness of sin. And Jesus is the only hope for you. The only hope after death. He's the only hope in this life. He's the only hope in death. He's the only hope for the future. He's the only hope for your sin to be forgiven. He is the only hope. He's the only light. And the Bible says we're not supposed to turn to him. We're supposed to look to him. He's your only hope to really live. That's why in the New Testament, when people see Jesus, when the first people see Jesus, what do they do? There's a guy named Simeon in Luke chapter two. He looks at Jesus as a baby. God gives him understanding. And you know what he says about this, this baby boy, this baby boy Jesus? What does he say? He says, this Jesus, this kid, he is a light for the nations. He's a light. All the nations, the Gentiles, all these outsiders are going to look to Jesus. He's talking about you and me, people who aren't even a part of this little people group. We're going to find hope in Jesus. How do we find hope in Jesus? New Testament says that in Jesus was life. This is John chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. It says, in Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. I know there's a lot of illustrations here, but I want you to follow this. This idea of light. He says, everybody walks in darkness without Jesus. Everybody is blind. Everybody is poor. Everybody cannot do life the right way. Everyone's going to die. Everybody is in trouble. But Jesus is the only light. And it says that in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Even though the world is evil, even though the world is a scary and evil place, God's word says that Jesus can come and solve our biggest problem. That's why the next thing that happens in Isaiah chapter 60, it's going to describe, we're not going to read the whole thing, but when you can, you can read it on your own after, but it says that stuff is going to happen that's crazy for the city of Jerusalem. It says, one day there will be people from all over the world, and you know what they're going to want to do? They're going to want to come to Jerusalem. 
They're going to want to come and see what happened there. They're going to focus all their attention. It says that kings will come in. People will give presents. It says the gates of the city will be open day and night and what's constantly going to be flowing in and out is people bringing gifts and things to the city of Jerusalem. If you live in Jerusalem at this time, you're going to be like, how on earth is that possible? How is that possible for God to have favor on this place? That's impossible. Well, he says, no, because light is coming because Jesus is going to do something about it. Check out verse 19 in the passage. This is Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19. He says to them, talking about light, he says, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness the moon give you light. Okay, wow, that's weird. So he says, one day the sun and moon will be taken away. What is he talking about? How is that possible? That's the only way we have light. Think about all the light that is in this world, right? It's derivative, which means it comes from the sun, even the light we're sitting under right now, right? A lot of the energy that we get, we would not have any energy to create anything if the sun did not shine on this planet exactly the way that God designed it. If we were any closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we were any further away, we'd freeze, okay? So God has made this world exactly how it needs to be to sustain life, okay? But we wouldn't happen without the sun, right? Everything comes from the sun. God gives us life through the sun. He says one day, the sun is not necessary anymore. And also, the moon will not be necessary anymore. Why? Look at what it says. It says, but the Lord, he will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory, your shining. He says one day in this city and for all of God's people, whether it be you or whether it be them, one day we will live in a place where we do not need a sun anymore or we don't need a moon to shine anymore. Why? Because God will live with us. God will be there. There's no need for light because God is the light and God will literally light up the place. Look at verse 20. He says, your, your sun shall no more go down, right? What happens to us naturally? Well, the sun goes down, right? Just like it does in Alaska, just like it does here. It goes down every night. He says, one day the sun will never go down nor the moon withdraw itself for the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. The bad times for these people will be over. Same thing's true for us. One day, all of our crying, our sadness, our mourning over whatever is going on in this world, it will be over and done because God will be with us. That's what this is all getting at. Verse 21, he says, your people shall all be righteous. What was the problem in Isaiah 59? It says, God looked and guess what? No one was righteous. Now it says, God looks and everyone is righteous. How does that happen, right? Well, God has to come and deal with sin. And how does he deal with sin? In, in two ways. Jesus came and he dealt with sin in the first way, which was by dying on the cross for his people. Secondly, he's going to come and he's going to deal with sin in a second way when he's going to judge everyone who doesn't turn to him. Okay? So God is going to deal with sin. He's going to bring righteousness. And then it says here that you and me and these people that are living in this kingdom, somehow they're all going to be righteous. How is that possible? You remember Isaiah 53? The last, second to last verse in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 verse 11 says that my servant will make many to be accounted as righteousness. Okay? God will do something through Jesus where he'll look at you, take you as a sinful person and me as a sinful person. I constantly have broken God's rules. God's going to look at me and he says, you're going to be made righteous now. How? That's not fair. How is that possible? Well, because the servant did it, because Jesus lived righteously in my place. And what this is saying is there will come a day where you and I, if you're in Christ, you will live in a world where everyone loves Christ. Have you thought about that? That one day, the world that you live in 
every person will love Jesus. Every person will do what's right, even you, better than you've ever done before. That's what he promises. So that's why there's no hope in this life. There's no hope because people die, people get sick, people do bad things in this world. There's no hope for a good life or anything good apart from what Jesus is gonna do. There's no hope. Because in the future, he promises for his people, he's gonna be their light and they'll all be righteous. Problem is, today, in our world, a lot of people don't see this. That's why point number one is realize Jesus is your only hope to really live. Real life, the real life we're talking about where there's no sin, there's no suffering, there's no crying, right? That can only come through Jesus. A lot of people say, oh, well, if you just live a good life, you'll go to heaven, right? People talk about um, at funerals or whatever, right? My grandpa, he's in a better place, right? If that has nothing to do with Jesus, then they have no hope, okay? The only hope comes through Jesus will make many righteous. Jesus will make a new world. Because if it doesn't come through that, it's just, it's just talk, sadly. So the only hope is through Jesus Christ. He says the problem for the world, though, is that they're blind to that. Okay? Maybe some of you are blind to that. Maybe you've never realized that your only hope is in Jesus. Maybe you think, well, I can have a good life here. I can make a lot of money here. I can be successful here. Well, God's word says, no, your only hope is in Jesus. New Testament says, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, says Satan actually has blinded the minds of people who don't believe in Jesus. They're blind. And who did it? Right? Well, Satan took part in this. Says he's blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light, the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. To keep them from seeing Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, the light that shines. So maybe if you're a person who is not right with God, you don't think you need Jesus. What this passage says is Satan has blinded your mind so you don't see your real need. You don't see your need for a savior. So tonight, that's one of the first things I want you to do. I want you to think, okay, I need a savior. I need light. I'm living in darkness. Maybe I didn't realize it before, but I'm in darkness. I need Jesus to do something about it. What should we do? Look at the next chapter. Look at chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus is going to talk here. This is going to the spirit, or not the spirit, the servant rather. He says, Isaiah chapter 61, says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And you know what the word anointed means? It means Messiah, Christ. So this is talking about Jesus here. It says, the spirit of the Lord has come upon me. He's anointed me, prepared me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God and to comfort those who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, this city, and give to them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, right? On their head right now, it's like they're going through all this bad time. They've got ashes on their head, right? People in their family have died. Right? The, the enemies are attacking them. They throw ashes on their head. Here's what God says. One day I'm going to wipe those ashes off and I'm going to put on a beautiful headdress, some beautiful hat or whatever that they wore back then, right? It was really good looking, apparently. It says, one day I'll give you a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. They were feeling a faint spirit. They felt like they were captives because they were, right? They were oppressed by all these outside people. But one day, it says, Jesus is going to come and remove all that from them. It says, 
that they'll be called oaks of righteousness, right? Oak trees, big oak trees, they've been there for a long time, right? They're not young trees. If, if you've got a big oak tree somewhere, it's been there for a long time. It's strong, it's rooted. It says that's what the people of God are gonna be like, oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Jesus is the one who's talking here, and I know that because in the New Testament, he says, this is me. This is all about me right here. But I want you to see what he's saying that Jesus is gonna come to bring salvation and that is the light, okay? So what's the light in Isaiah chapter 60? Well, it's what Jesus is gonna do in Isaiah chapter 61. And we look back in time and we say, that's why we can have hope because Jesus came to save us, okay? That's point number two. I want you to write that down. Share the good news that Jesus came to save because that's what Jesus is doing here. He's like telling everybody, hey, get excited. Tell people, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news. And what am I gonna say? Salvation can be found in me. What he does here says, I came to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to set at liberty the captives, the opening of prison to those who are bound. He says something weird in chapter 61, verse two. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? Maybe you just skipped over that and didn't even think about that. But I think that's a reference to something called the year of jubilee, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10, God commanded for the people of Israel every 50 years to take all the people that were their servants and to set them free. To take all the people that owed them a debt and to forgive the debt every 50 years. So it didn't happen very often. Pretty much once in a lifetime for most people. They had all their debts forgiven, all their, their land allotments because the whole thing with the Israelites was they went into this land and God said, you can have this much, you can have this much, you can have this much. Every 50 years, it was supposed to reset. So imagine you're a person who because of bad decisions by your parents or your grandparents or whatever, you didn't have any money, okay? You were a servant somewhere far away from your household. Let's say you're 100, 200, 300 miles away from where you were supposed to grow up on the land that God gave you. But then on the 50th year, the trumpet blows. The year begins. The year of Jubilee begins. Guess what happens? You get all your stuff back. You go walking back home. You walk out of your service. And you say, I'm now set free to live for God in the way I was supposed to in my land allotment. He says, that's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. It's going to be like you're all in prison, right? Just like all of us, we are imprisoned, Romans chapter 6 says, to our sin. That's why in John 8, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world and all those who follow me will not walk in darkness anymore. That's why you and me right now, we don't have to walk in darkness. You don't have to walk in sin anymore. You don't have to walk in fear anymore. You don't have to walk in the shame of your old life anymore. You don't have to do any of that because Jesus is the light of the world and he sets them free. How does he do that? Well, I said that Jesus claimed this. If you're really fast, you can turn there. But Luke chapter four, verse 16, says Jesus was in the synagogue of his hometown. He was in Nazareth. It said where he'd been brought up. And as it was the custom there, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up and read. So this is his hometown. People know him. He goes and, and they say, hey, Jesus, do you want to read the scroll? And it says in the scroll, the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, okay? Just like you did tonight when you opened your Bible and read the book of Isaiah. That's exactly what Jesus did. It was just with a big, long scroll. Okay. Think that through. That's amazing. Reading the same text that Jesus read 2,000 years ago. It says, he opened the scroll and he found the place where it was written. Look at verse 18. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set those who are, uh, to set those at liberty who are captives and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. So it was like the sermons today, right? We read the text at the beginning and then we say, all right, what's this all about? That's what Jesus does. He reads the text and he gives it back and he sits down. What's Jesus gonna say? Well, here's what he says. It says, and the eyes of all those in the synagogue were fixed on him. Everyone was looking at Jesus. What's he gonna say now? Jesus said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right? And then he said some more stuff. It says he began to tell them. So this is the beginning of his sermon. Luke doesn't record the whole sermon, but that's what he started with. Jesus said, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one who's gonna come and do this. And it says, they all spoke well of him and marveled at him at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, don't we know this guy? I can't believe he has all this wisdom. Is he really the one that's gonna come? And later on in the book of Luke, the person who was supposed to know the most about Jesus, John the Baptist, he had a crisis. He had a moment where he wanted to know more about what Jesus was doing. And it says that he was in prison. He asked two of his followers, he says, go ask Jesus. Hey, are you the one that's coming or should we expect another? Because I haven't seen you do all the stuff that the Old Testament says yet. You haven't taken the year of vengeance upon yourself. You haven't taken all the people who are God's enemies and banished them out of Jerusalem. So are you the one that's to come? Jesus says something very smart, as he always does. John the Baptist asked him this. Says this is Luke 7, 21. Says in that hour, Jesus has just healed many people of diseases and plagues and also evil spirits. There's people who are oppressed by evil spirits that God cast out through what Jesus did. Many who were blind, he bestowed their sight. So this has all just happened right before this. And then here's what Jesus says to John the Baptist's followers. He says, go tell John what you've seen and heard. What did they see in here? Well, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Leopards are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm doing Isaiah 61. I am proving to you that I, by doing the first half, the beginning of Isaiah 61, what is Jesus proving? I'm gonna do the second half too, right? He's coming and he's delivering people who are oppressed by evil spirits. He's healing people of diseases. What is he showing them? He's showing them, I am the one that's gonna come and save. Those are little problems in comparison to the big problem. What is Jesus trying to say? I can do these little things, right? Which aren't little to us, right? Healing people of diseases, ridding people of all their, their issues in life. Then what does he do? He's, tell, he's telling John and the apostles and the, all John's disciples, he's saying, I'm gonna do the rest of it too. That's what he's proving to them. Back in our passage, Isaiah 61, he says in verse six, he says, but they, these people, shall be called priests of the Lord. He says, all the people that follow me, you're gonna be like special people to me, priests of the Lord, and they shall be ministers of God. He says, even they will eat the wealth of the nations. People will come and praise these followers of God. Like, how is that gonna happen? Right? How can Jesus make that happen? Because he didn't make it happen in the first coming, did he? Right, because all the people didn't come to the apostles and just worship and praise them and give them a bunch of food and, and kings didn't bow down to it. Like, that didn't happen. How is this gonna be fulfilled? Jesus is looking forward to the future. Isaiah is writing about something that's gonna happen in the future. But he says, even now, you're made priests of God, right? God's special people. Book of 1 Peter, Peter says something similar. He says, but you, Christians, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation, people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, okay? That's what this point's all about. He says, God has saved you. If you're a saved person, if you're forgiven, God has saved you. One of the purposes that he has in saving you is that you would now tell everybody, share the good news that Jesus came to save. If you've realized Jesus has come to save and he saved me and you've trusted him. Here's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's saying, now it's your turn to go and share that with other people. Peter goes on in this passage. He says, once you were not a people, you weren't a special people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, You know where he gets that? He gets that from the next chapter. Look at Isaiah chapter 62, verse 12. Look in your Bibles at Isaiah 62, verse 12. I know we're kind of reading two passages at once here, but 1 Peter 2 is in your mind. Now I want you to think back, Isaiah 62, verse 12. What are these people going to be called? These people who are saved by the work of Jesus, what are they going to be called? The holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out. Okay. Have you ever felt what it's like to be sought out? That someone was looking for you? Right. Sometimes you show up to TNN and people are like, like, hey, someone was looking for you. Someone was looking. How does that feel when someone's looking for you? Right. Well, good or bad, I guess, depending on who's looking for you. Right. If someone is like your principal's looking for you, then it's like, oh, that's not good. Um, but if it's like my friend is looking for me, someone's looking for me. I, oh, I want them to look for me. Okay. Here's what he's saying: is one day. This group of people who feels like they got rejected because God did treat them badly because of their sin. He says, one day, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be sought out. God will look for you. God will care for you. Same thing for the Christian. Same thing for every follower of Christ. You're going to be called a holy people, redeemed of the Lord, sought out, and a city not forsaken. In the book of 1 Peter, he says, once you've not received mercy, once you were not a people, now God has called you his people. Right? If you've been saved by the good news, what we're supposed to do is share it. He says, in the meantime, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, people who don't belong in this world, that you abstain from the passions of the flesh. Don't give in to all your feelings in this world, which wage a war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the outsiders, the non-Christians, keep that pure and honorable so that when they speak of you as evildoers, when they say, oh, Christians are all hateful, mean people, that when they say that about you, everyone will know, well, not, not that person though. They're super kind. No, not that. No, once they speak evil of you, they're going to see your good deeds. And one day it says many of them will actually glorify God. Even your good deeds might be the thing that starts to lead some people to interest in Jesus because they're going to look at you. Although they had misconceptions, bad thoughts about Christians, they're going to see you as one of God's holy people and they're going to see you living righteously. And then some of them are going to look back and say, wow, that was the first time I started really thinking about God is when I saw that friend I had who started living for God. Well, I didn't even know it at the time, but that was something different about them. It drew them. The idea here is God makes these people whole new people. It's like, um, have you ever switched teams? I don't know if any of you have done that. Some of you are travel soccer, right? Club soccer, travel baseball. Right? Those are the big sports. When I was in junior high, maybe you got other teams, but when you join a team, you're part of a team for a while, right? You wear the jersey, you wear the hat, it's all you wear, right? And then you switch teams. I don't know if any of you have ever switched teams before like that, right? I did that at one point, and it was odd. It was like, whoa, I was on that team, now I'm on this team. It feels different. Different categories, different, different coach, different drills, different jerseys, right? It might be the same sport, but it all feels different because now you're part of a different group. That's what he's saying. It's like to be a Christian, right? You're still you, but now everything's changed. You've got a different goal. 
You've got a different coach. You've got a different group of people that's around. You've got different teammates. It says, now we have a different goal. What's the goal? One of the goals is to share the good news that Jesus came to save us. Chapter 62 says more about this. In fact, as we think about living for Jesus, because this passage is all about light and hope, right? How does Jesus give hope, right? Well, if you're honest, you'll look around in the world and see a lot of evil things, right? People don't treat others well. There's murder. There's evil things. People are mean to you. Maybe people in your family. Maybe for some of you, your parents don't get along. Others of you, your grandparents have died. And it's like evil, 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 all this bad stuff. Is there any hope? Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm going to come and change this. One day, God is going to live with his people and they will never be crying or mourning or pain anymore. See, 61, Jesus says, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to come once. I'm going to prove to everybody that I'm the one who can do this. And then I'm going to come again. But what do we do in the meantime? Right? If you're a Christian, right, if you follow Jesus, what do you do in the meantime? Because Jesus came to save in the past, but he's going to come and save in the future too. What are we supposed to do now? Look at Isaiah 62. Isaiah shows us what we're supposed to do in the meantime. Isaiah 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake, Isaiah says, I will not keep silence. Says, because of the salvation God's going to bring, you know what I'm going to do? I'm never going to shut up about it. That's what Isaiah says. If you want it more, he says it again. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. So Isaiah's going to tell everybody what God's going to do, even before God does it, because he trusts God just like we are supposed to do. We're supposed to share people, wish people that God can save them through Jesus. Although they're not dead yet. Their life hasn't been saved yet, but one day Jesus will save it. We're, we're like Isaiah here. It says, until her righteousness, the righteousness of Jerusalem, shall go forth as brightness, and until her righteousness shall shine as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Right? You see how we're still talking about light and darkness here? It's like, until the day, when all of God's people are together and all of them are living with God face to face, no more sun, no more moon, God is their only light. Until that day, what does Isaiah say? I'm gonna not shut up about it. I'm gonna tell everybody about this. I'm gonna share the truth. Verse two, nations shall come and see your righteousness and kings all your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give you. It says you're like an unrecognizable people. Save people. It's like, I don't even recognize you anymore. You're like a totally different people group. Just Jerusalem's like totally different. Now that they're righteous, I can't even recognize them. Just like Christians and non-Christians. Wow, you're a Christian? Like I can't even, you're totally different. You used to be mean to everybody. Now you're kind. You used to be a liar. Now you tell the truth. You used to be crude and you used to cuss and you used to do all these terrible things. But now, as a Christian, now you're different. It says, I'll call you by a new name, Jerusalem. Verse number three, you shall be called a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, right? Do you feel like a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, right? If you answer that, yes, you probably are prideful. The answer is no, right? We are not, like there's nothing beautiful about us. How can God be proud of us? This is one day God will, will love and care and like he'll treat so well the, the people of God. They'll be like a crown, a royal diadem in the hand of God. It says one day the people of God will be like the crown that he sets on his head. Why? Well, I think because it's so impressive on how God got that crown there. It's not impressive because you're an important person or because you're amazing. I think it's amazing that God can take evil and sinful people like us and transform us. And that's why we'll be so impressive, so amazing in the future, because we're not now. 
It says in verse four, you shall no longer be termed forsaken, but your land shall no longer be termed desolate, but you shall be called, quote, my delight is in her. It's like, um, it's like a wife and a husband. That's what's being described here. It says right now, it feels like Jerusalem is like some guy walked away from his wife, right? Some guy left his wife and said, I don't love you anymore. I hate you. I hate you. I'm gone. I don't love you, right? Okay, wow, that's really bad. Forsaken, right? Desolate. Then it says, you won't be called that anymore. When this comes together, it's gonna feel like between God and his people, it's like God's gonna say, my delight is in you. I love, I care, like I'm, I'm so fond of, of my people. Why? Because of everything they did? No. It says, but the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. It says, for as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you. It's like people in this land are gonna get married and it's gonna be beautiful, right? Like whenever there's a wedding, right? All you girls, right? That's why you always say, aw, when there's a wedding, right? Because it's, oh, it's so cute, right? Guys don't really care, but you care at some point. Um, when you finally get in around to like wanting someone to marry you, you'll care a little bit more. Um, it's okay, we got a lot of time for some of you. Um, it's all good. Point is, says that's what it's gonna be like when God's people are together with God. It's gonna be like a wedding. A wedding. What happens at a wedding? Well, people get together and the whole point is we're never breaking up anymore. We're not leaving, right? No more long distance relationship. We're together. Our wedding's just a small picture of that. This is gonna be a forever thing. Look at verse six. This is really what we're getting at in this chapter. He says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. We read about those people in Ezekiel, right? Imagine a big wall, big, you know, city with walls. Because imagine there's people set on those walls and they're supposed to guard. They're supposed to watch out for any enemies. He says, set on your walls, O Jerusalem, watchmen, all day and all night, they shall never be silent. What? That'd be weird. If they're always ringing the bell, always saying something's coming. What's going to happen? Is you will put the Lord in remembrance. You who put the Lord in remembrance. Okay, if you're going to be a person who remembers that God's going to save his people, you are supposed to take no rest. Wow, I, that sounds like a hard job. Taking no rest. Why? Then it says, and you give him no rest. So think that through. It's like, he says, don't fall asleep. Okay. And make sure God doesn't fall asleep. <laughs> that, how would we do that? Until, look at verse seven, until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Here's what he's saying. God's people, in the time in between Jesus' first coming and second coming, it's like we're supposed to stand like watchmen on the top of a tower and look and keep asking God, God, when are you gonna make this happen? God, when are you gonna come back? God, when is your kingdom gonna come? When is your will gonna be done on earth? God, please come back. Jesus, you promised to come back. Come back, Jesus, come back soon. It's like you're supposed to, have no rest. And it says, you're supposed to give God no rest. You're supposed to constantly be in his ear, right? It's like, you know, when you, your little siblings, you have little siblings, you know what sometimes they do? They're just in your ear, right? Does it get annoying ever? Yes. Or you're the younger sibling, right? But imagine there's constantly, they give you no rest, okay? They take no rest. They give you no rest. They're just constantly in your ear. It's like, that's what he's saying. Your prayer should be like that to God. That you're constantly going to God, asking, God, when is this going to happen? God, when are you going to make this happen? God, you promised to live with your people. And you might say, well, that's mean to give God no rest. Right? Why would, that sounds like a rude thing to do. Look at verse 8. It says, the Lord has sworn. He's made a promise. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and his mighty arm. So he's made a promise. So when you are asking God 
for his kingdom to come. The point is, you're asking God for something that he already made a promise to do. That's why, what does Jesus say in the New Testament? We're supposed to pray things according to God's will. Guess what? If we're asking God to make all this happen, we're asking God for something that is according to his will. Something that he has promised and something he will give an answer to. Point number three, I'd love for you to write this down. Confidently ask God to bring his kingdom quickly. Confidently ask God to bring his kingdom quickly. That is exactly what Jesus taught us to pray. Think about the first thing. Like when Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, like he could have said, pray for this food, pray that you'd keep us healthy, pray, like what are the things that you pray for, right? That, probably a lot of those things. Here's what Jesus tells them to pray for. Just pray then like this. Our Father who's in heaven, recognizing God's amazingness, says, hallowed be your name. God, you're so holy. You're so perfect, God. What's the first thing that he asks him? What's the first thing that Jesus asks God for? And he tells us, this is what you need to ask God for. What's the very first thing? Your kingdom come. God, bring your kingdom. Because we're supposed to be like watchmen on the wall. We're supposed to be in God's ear every day, day and night, asking God, when are you going to make this happen? God, you promised. You promised you'd come back. God, you promised that you would end suffering and death. You promised you'd do that. God, make that happen. God, come back, please. Specifically, we think of the servant. We think of Jesus. What did Jesus promise us? At the very end, right? The last thing he said before he left, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The last thing that he says in the whole Bible comes in the last two verses, Revelation 22, 20. He says, surely I am coming soon. Coming soon. In the New Testament, remember in the gospels, what does he always say? He says, make sure you stay awake. Don't be like servants who are sleeping because I'm gonna come in an hour that you don't expect. You should be constantly be ready, alert, and asking for me to come, waiting for me to come. It's a weird section in the New Testament. I want you to look at it. I want you to turn to the book of Luke. Look at Luke 18. So interesting. I think so much of Luke's gospel reflects these three chapters. I think it's on purpose. That the things that Luke records that Jesus did, I think a lot of it has to do with Isaiah 60, 61, and 62. Specifically 61. He quotes it two times. In Luke 4 that we looked at, Luke 7 that we looked at. Now I think we see another allusion to it in Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 1. And everybody check this out. Luke 18, 1. This is a parable you might have heard before, but you probably didn't think about it in this context. But the reality is Jesus hits the punchline with what this is all about. God's kingdom coming. Luke 18. It says, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. What are things that you should always pray for and never lose heart on? You can't say that's true about sickness and, and health, right? Maybe God will take away your sickness and health. Maybe God will have someone die. You can't pray always for that. What are the things that we should pray all, well, for things that he promises he's going to do, right? And this is one of them. Verse number two, Jesus told a story. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Evil guy in this parable. And there was also a widow in this city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. Okay, this widow, we don't know her story, but you can imagine a widow. She doesn't have, her dad doesn't seem to be around. Her husband's dead. So clearly someone stole something. Someone took something, took advantage of her. Maybe stole stuff out of her yard, stole stuff from her property. Maybe legally figured out a way to steal her property. We don't know. But she doesn't get justice. 
Right? Nobody's helping her. Treated unfairly. She goes to this judge who's also evil. And she's constantly asking, when are you going to give me justice? Judge, please give me justice. It says, for a while, look at verse four. For a while, he refused. But afterwards, he said to himself, okay, this is a funny thing he says to himself. He says, though I neither fear God nor respect man, I don't care about God. I don't care about any people. That's what this judge says to himself. But because this lady is so annoying, because she's bothering me, she keeps coming to me. She says, give me justice. Well, because she keeps bothering me, I'll give her justice. So she'll just be quiet and go away. I'm going to listen to her because she's just annoying. Okay. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. So Jesus speaks. He says, think about what the unrighteous judge says. When the unrighteous judge hears this lady constantly, at some point he's going to give in because it's just annoying to him. That's what the, the, catch it, the unrighteous judge. What is God in Isaiah 60 and 61? The righteous judge. Is verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect, his people, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? What is he talking about? Is he talking about their situation to get better? Is he talking about you know, people to not persecute them? No, he's talking about Isaiah 61 and 62. He's talking about this new world that Jesus is going to create. He's going to come in justice. He's going to make this new world where everything's going to be perfect. He says, will not God give justice to them quickly? I tell you, verse number eight, this is the command for us, okay? That was the parable, that was the story. What's the moral of the story? What do we need to do? Verse eight, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when he comes, think this through, that's when he answers, is when he comes, right? When Jesus comes back, that's when he gives them justice. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? Who's gonna be asking? says, Jesus is going to come back, but who are the people that are going to be like the watchmen asking Jesus, please come back, please come back. So whenever anything goes wrong in your life, or even when things are good, right? when things are bad, here's the first response that we should have. Jesus, please come back. Please come back. Because I know when you come back, everything that I'm worried about or complaining about or just think is wrong, it's all going to be fixed when you come back. In your perfect kingdom, there will never be death. There will never be sickness. It will just be gone. It'll all be perfect. So your, your gut reaction needs to be when things are, what do I, what should I pray? Right? First thing on the list is, God, please come back. Please establish your kingdom. Everything will be perfect when you come back. That's why he says it's like a wedding. Right? Reminds me of the long distance relationships, right? Imagine you know, you're dating somebody. Right? Imagine, a lot of you might take a lot of imagination. Um, no offense. But imagine you're older, or maybe you got a sibling who's engaged or dating somebody, but it's long distance. They're away from each other. Maybe your parents did this for a while. Most of your parents probably did at some point date, and they probably weren't always living in the same place, right? My parents had a long distance relationship. I kind of had a long distance relationship. It's only 80 miles, but it was okay. Um, wasn't that long, babe. Um, now it's as long as it's ever been. You're like 100 feet away from me. Long distance relationship. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but the point is, the long-distance relationship ends when they get married, right? If it was your parents or it's your siblings or whatever, like, or if it's you one day, it will be over because you'll be close. So that's why we already looked at it, but in Isaiah 62, what does God say? It's like when Jesus comes back, 
when God's kingdom comes, it's going to be like a wedding. It's going to be like, finally, we're getting married. Finally, we're together. We've been apart for so long, but now we're together. It will feel like that. That's why it says it's like when a young man takes a young woman and marries her. It'll be awesome. We're all going to get excited because it's going to be good. Because in this situation, the New Testament says all the people of God are like the bride. We're all like the, the beloved, the chosen one of God. That's why it says one day he's going to look at you, the church, and he's going to say, you're going to be sought after. You're going to be sought out. Revelation 19 says that one day there will be a great multitude that shouts something. Here's what they're going to shout. This is Revelation 19, verses 6, 7, and 8. They're going to shout out, Hallelujah, praise God. For the Lord our God, Almighty, he reigns. Let us rejoice. Let's sing. Let's exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. A big white dress that's super expensive and nice. For the fine linen, it says, is the righteous deeds of the saints. It says the bride of Christ, the people of God. One day are going to be ready pure, ready for God. Two chapters later, Revelation 21, the end of everything, he says, John writes this, he says, I heard a voice, and here's what the voice said. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Do you see what that is? That's called a wedding. They live together now. They used to be apart. Now God and his people, guess what? Together, forever, totally secure. You might think, well, what if anything messes that up? What if they sin again? Well, what if it's like Adam and Eve, right? They live with God in the, in the garden too, but then, then they got all messed up. What if we sin in the future? Well, look what it says in the next verse. This is Revelation 21, 4. After he says in verse three, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall be crying or mourning over someone who's dead or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Right? That's why when anything is ever wrong in this world, what is the solution? What is the hope? It's the light. It's Jesus. And what do we look forward to? The wedding. Right? When we as God's people are joined with Jesus forever. Any problem that you have, any insecurity, any lack of security, right, is what I mean by insecurity. What if this goes wrong. What if my parents don't get along? What if my siblings and I never stop fighting? What if this? What if that? What if I don't end up at the right school? What if I don't, what if I, what if, what if, what if? All that will be done when God is with his people, when God's with us. It's going to be like a wedding. The whole point is we're supposed to never stop asking Jesus to come back. We're supposed to be in God's ear. Give God no rest and take no rest. That's what Isaiah 62 says that we should do. We're going to talk about that in small groups, but I hope that even right now as we pray for Jesus to come back, that those of you who are right with God would continue to pray for that. And those of you that don't know God like this start to realize this is one of the reasons you need to get to know God soon because he is going to come back. The wedding is going to take place and we're going to be with God forever. So let's pray for that right now. God, we're thankful for this passage where we see that you are the light of the world. You're going to bring salvation to us. We see that we, although we walked in darkness, we're going to see this light. We know that you, Jesus, the light of the world, you've come. You've come so that we don't have to walk in darkness anymore. 
pray that we'd see, thankfully, that we've been sought out by you. We didn't go searching for you. We didn't earn our way to you. You came and you sought us out. Pray for the people in this room right now who have been pushing you away as you've been seeking them out, as you've been convicting their hearts and you've been pushing, or they've been pushing you away. I ask that you would break their hearts tonight, that they'd look to you, they'd finally give up running from you. I pray that they would take joy knowing that you have loved them with a great love that they don't deserve. We're thankful that you've loved us in Jesus. You've sent your son to live in our place and to die in our place. You've made us righteous for in Christ. Thank you for making us righteous. Pray for this kingdom to come. Pray that we would not be silent. Pray that we'd all get better at praying for you to come back. That we'd see that every problem, that whatever our problems are, whatever problems we see in our life will be fixed and solved when you come back. So pray that we'd ask for you to come back all the time. Please help us with that. In Jesus' name we pray.